0: It's a, it's a real pleasure to, to be here on this historic campus and it's, all, it's even more of a pleasure and an honor to be able to participate in the, I think of it, the sort of revolution of the spirit and revolution of the mind that Thomas Aquinas College represents, a much needed revolution, I would say, in, in our society and, and in the church. So um, let me thank you for what you're doing here. Uh, both as teachers and students. Liberalism and integralism. You know I was thinking about what to talk about for tonight and I realized that I should probably talk about what everybody's talking about which is integralism. Liberalism and integralism and uh, so I I decided not to evade uh, the hot-button issue of our time and to try to address it directly. So that's my aim this evening. Liberalism and integralism. We're living in a time of disintegration. Our governing consensus is unraveling. To what degree it's unraveling I think remains disputed, although a recent bulletin from the Department of Homeland Security indicates significant concern among those who are custodians of that consensus. This, this uh, bulletin defines as threat actors, not just those with plans to attack or subvert our way of life, but anyone who seeks to, and this is from the bulletin, seeks to undermine public trust in government institutions. Ooh, potential threat. We're imperiled, it goes on to say, by those promoting what, what good p- sort of postmodern modern uh, formulation, misleading narratives. From what I can tell, government security analysts have in mind those claiming electoral fraud or questioning COVID-19 policies. And perhaps these are just passing phenomena and will return to normal, but I think not. The concern runs deep. The concern about disintegration runs deep. At a more sophisticated and theoretical level many political philosophers and intellectuals are ringing the alarm bell. They're warning of rising illiberalism. And they say that this illiberalism threatens the core commitments of the American tradition. Now truth be told, I I sigh when people say that fascism looms as a clear and present danger and I tire of polemics against integralism. Today, it seems evident to me that the woke neo-Puritanism of the left is far more likely to to destroy our liberal traditions and subvert our constitutional system of government than a ragtag band of role-playing neo-Nazis, or for that matter, a theory advanced by a few journalists and academics. Nevertheless, I hesitate to dismiss the concerns that people have about illiberalism. It's useful, in my experience, it's useful to ask why otherwise sober people get so worked up about things. A few years ago, I wrote the book, Return of the Strong Gods, and in that book, I sketched an answer. And I'm going to spare you tonight a regurgitation of that argument. Instead, I want to look at rising concerns about integralism and illiberalism more generally. By the way, I recommend the book, it's not not bad. As one of my friends said, uh, you know, you're not wrong and you might even be right. Um, So what explains these urgent warnings about illiberalism? In my view, the panic arises because the custodians of the liberal heritage suspect that its achievements are fragile. And they are correct in this suspicion. And this is why they protect liberalism with the ardor of a lioness defending her cubs. Thus if we are to understand the often unedifying debate about integralism, and it has in many cases been very unedifying to my mind, we must first grasp the fragility of liberalism. To do so, let me turn to St. Augustine. He reformulates Cicero's definition of a civitas, a, a body politic. He does so in the following way. He says, a mass of individuals becomes a public, becomes a people or a civitas when they are united by shared loves. Liberalism proposes a shared love of freedom as the foundation of our common life. On this view, freedom is autonomy, which is a fancy Hellenistic way of saying that freedom is self-command. A liberal polity therefore promotes and defends this love of freedom or self-command. Now, I do not intend tonight to expound the major proponents of liberalism, nor do I wish to tangle with the critics of liberalism who purport to show that this tradition of thought is incoherent or doomed to fail. I will simply observe, as a matter of fact, that freedom can serve as a shared love. Our country offers a signal example of, uh, of a body politic organize, organized around a shared love of freedom. In other words, liberalism has been and remains a viable political tradition. It is one capable of commanding loyalty and giving a distinct character to a system of government and to a way of life, as it has to our own here in the United States. But this shared love requires other loves in order to flourish and to endure. And therein lies the appeal of integralism for integralism speaks of the other shared loves, loves that do not fall within the ambit of liberalism. Put simply, there cannot be a purely liberal society. Liberalism, I like to think of thinking it this way, liberalism must be an adjective, as in liberal Christianity or liberal Judaism or liberal rationalism or liberal Platonism It cannot function on its own. And when it tries to do so, the result is bondage and tyranny, not freedom. I think this is the Graveman of Patrick Deneen's uh, book, Why Liberalism Failed, that the outcome of liberalism is actually the opposite of what it promises. Liberalism, therefore, cannot endure without something of the illiberal truth of integralism. And this will be the gist of my argument tonight. Liberalism cannot endure without something of the illiberal truth of integralism. So, the argument. Let's begin by unpacking liberalism's shared love of freedom. It rests on the conviction that we're not just selfish genes, nor are we victims of our environments. We are capable of self-command, says the liberal, and it, and, it, and it is ignoble to live in a way that overrides or stunts this capacity for self-command. In this view of freedom, it, I mean, it is this view of freedom and self-command that underwrites the modern projects of liberation. And these projects take two general forms. One aims to remove barriers and the other seeks empowerment. So there are two kinds of liberations, one removing barriers, the other providing empowerment. The first form is found in what people now call classical liberalism. It rests on the principle of non-interference, which dictates removing traditional forms of control over personal decisions, especially control that relies upon the power of the state. In the early 19th century, English liberals put John Locke's concept of natural right into action by removing pre-modern limits on commerce. And in this way, vindicated the the right to free use of one's property. In the middle of the 20th century, Milton Friedman championed free economic exchange, which he recognized was able to, not just promote economic growth and efficiency, but he recognized that it was able to create a social order and harmony among among individuals with a minimum command over personal choices. Whatever form it takes, classical liberalism emphasizes control reduction. So I'd say that's the kind of uh, thrust of classical liberalism. Control reduction. It aims to clear as much space as possible for self-government. The second form of liberalism is also concerned with reducing limits on personal freedom, but it focuses on empowerment rather than reduction of control. Jean-Jacques Rousseau pioneered this approach. He recognized that we are social animals, often dominated by society's image of our worth and purpose. We're so dominated that we are unable to formulate our own sense of self. (laughs) Thus, true freedom requires a therapy of authenticity or some other form of empowerment. More practically minded liberals saw that the free use of property is a dead letter if one is imprisoned in poverty. As, indiv- as an individual's freedom to sell his labor becomes a cold comfort in the face of the power of capital. These insights led to the tax welfare and labor policies that Americans associate with the Democratic Party, and it goes by the name of modern liberalism. In an influential essay, Two Concepts of Liberty, Isaiah Berlin juxtaposed these two projects. He saw the project of control reduction as guarding, in his terminology, negative liberty, while he described empowerment as the pursuit of what he called positive liberty. And there is a distinction, I think, between these two projects, but Berlin wrongly framed the two goals as divergent. In truth, control reduction and empowerment have always been intertwined in the history of liberalism. Consider economic freedom. The elimination of pre-modern constraints upon employment, investment, and trade served the cause of negative liberty in the 19th century. But these early 19th century measures worked in tandem with the development of a wide range of laws that empowered entrepreneurial activity, the most important of which was the limited liability corporation. In other words, the history of liberal capitalism is not just one of clearing away obstacles, although that's often uh, all we hear is, you know, reducing taxes and, and deregulating. It, that history also includes policies of empowerment. As I say, uh, limited liability corporation is a very powerful, uh, very, a very remarkable tool of empowerment because it, it, it means you don't have to go to debtor's prison if your corporation fails or you don't lose your house. And the construction of the WTO in the 1990s is another example of, of liberal empowerment, liberal economic empowerment. So I think a long history of this, double double element. And we can see this double movement in other modern projects of liberation. Racial discrimination in the South was a vast and detailed system of state-enforced social control. In other parts of the country, a more ad hoc system of racial control held sway. Removing those constraints was imperative. For example, the Voting Rights Act of 1965 forbade electoral laws designed to prevent blacks from voting. But the cause of negative liberty in the civil rights movement was immediately linked to empowerment and positive liberty. The same Voting Rights Act provided the legal basis for judges to require states to establish districts to ensure the election of black representatives. I mean, we're still in this with ongoing uh, litigation about redistricting in North Carolina and and some other states so it's still with us this and that's it's it's the empowerment imperative uh not the control reduction imperative that's driving that and of course affirmative action and other aspects of our civil rights program are entirely devoted to empowerment feminism and sexual liberation follow the same pattern eliminating barriers on the one hand while emphasizing empowerment on the other hand Our liberalism is not satisfied with laws against employment discrimination. We are urged to give girls positive images of female achievement and when they are young to read them books about female doctors and female CEOs. And the same holds for homosexuality and transgenderism. In both cases, draconian measures are urged to suppress natural instincts and encourage new attitudes so that everyone can be free to be himself. Now classical liberals is sort of double intertwined quality of of negative and positive liberty control reduction and empowerment it's it's they're always intertwined in the history of liberalism. Now classical liberals and libertarians insist that we can have a free society without the interference that comes from large-scale projects of empowerment. I mean large-scale projects of empowerment kind of compel us to participate in the affirmative activity to empower people. That's what the whole pronoun business is. I have to use certain pronouns in order to empower people to embrace their gender identity. But John Stuart so the libertarians said we we can have liberalism without that. But John Stuart Mill's seminal book on liberty shows, I think, the inevitable link between negative and positive liberty. Mill notes that true liberty requires attaining psychological freedom from the controlling power of dominant social and moral norms. Without an inner freedom from the voice of social social censure, we are not able to be genuinely self-governing. I mean, society's, if you will, governing us through our internalized internalized, uh, voice of the social consensus. Now, Mill temporizes at this point suggesting that those who possess talent and refinement have the wherewithal to embark upon what he calls experiments in living. But it's just naturally we would ask ourselves, why should freedom be limited in this way only to the talented and the refined? If we are to have a truly liberal society, one united in a shared love of freedom, then surely we must devote ourselves to the great labor of using the political and cultural power we possess to critique, undermine, and sideline the social and moral norms that prevail. And to this effort we must add an equally urgent and pervasive therapy of affirmation so that those socialized in accord with the old norms are empowered to craft and embrace their own identities. we're, 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 We're we're gonna get pretty much the kind of liberalism we have today, progressive politics we have today. In the, um, I think on, on Mill's own grounds. So the progressive politics of transgenderism exemplifies this double movement, control reduction and empowerment. On the one hand, we must believe that our sex is really gender. It is socially constructed, we are told, rather than given by nature. This move enhances negative liberty by undermining traditional norms that shape how we think about ourselves as men and women. But this is not enough. We must also affirm girls who call themselves boys and boys who call themselves girls, taking with utmost seriousness their self-identification as either male or female, accepting this duty, this duty of taking with utmost seriousness, and in fact our duty to impose, a duty that we impose upon the recalcitrant This is necessary to secure positive liberty. It helps those who are in transition, as they say, by cheering and championing their choices. In view of the difficulty of sustaining oneself in a sex that one is not, the imperative of empowerment becomes so urgent that everyone must be compelled to play his role by using the correct pronouns and adopting a inclusive and affirmative attitude. I mean I just think if you're thinking about Mill uh, Liberty is the freedom to engage in experiments and living that you're gonna get the empowerment uh, project uh, and not just the control reduction project. Now strictly speaking tyranny means being subject to arbitrary control. Under that definition the fact that I can be fired from my job for misgendering someone. I can't actually from first things, but if I worked for a large corporation, perhaps I could get fired for misgendering someone or hauled into court in England for hate speech. This does not indicate that I live under a tyrannical regime for the control being exercised over me is not arbitrary. It is more accurate to speak of such a regime as totalitarian because it threatens, punishes, and, and uses coercion, its uses of coercion are entirely in accord with the logic of a society devoted to freedom above all else. Let me spell this out with an analogy. It's kind of, uh, um, uh, so, you know, so I'm arguing here that a shared love of freedom, if that becomes the singular love for a society, you'll get a totalitarian society as we have to mobilize everything to make everyone free. So let me spell this out with an analogy. Consent of the governed, the laws of the government serves as a core liberal principle. We secure this assent through elections in which no one person has a greater say than any other person. I think these are non-controversial statements I'm making here. As the adage has it, one man, one vote. But we know that the freedom of all citizens to vote as they see fit does not really mean that everyone has an equal say. Political campaigns are, after all, costly, and rich people can amplify their votes through large contributions. As a remedy in our society, we've imposed restrictions on campaign contributions. This is done to limit the political influence of wealth and to try to push nudge things back to a, 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 a genuine one man, one vote. But it's not hard to see that such a policy only goes part of the way. Those with no means at all remain relatively impotent no matter what our campaign donation restrictions are. For this reason, some press for the elimination of private contributions altogether from political campaigns and they urge the establishment of a system of government funded political campaigns as is the case in some European countries. And in fact, our presidential campaigns were for 40 years a hybrid system of public and private contributions until uh, it just became more lucrative just to, well, I won't go into it. But even this approach is not sufficient of public um, campaign uh, funding of campaigns. If we seek a perfect freedom for everyone to participate in our political life in a real and meaningful way, we must opt for empowerment, giving each citizen a set sum to allocate to candidates of their choice. It just seems to me, if you really want one man vote, you're attentive to uh, realities about politics, that the only way you can have a genuinely liberal society is if everyone gets the same amount of money to contribute to the candidates of their choice during the election season. Progressive cultural politics is nothing other than the logic of campaign finance reform applied to every aspect of life. Whether we call it political correctness or identity politics such an approach seeks to reallocate social power and cultural capital so that all of us have an equal freedom to determine what kind of society we're going to have going forward. The straight white male like me is like the wealthy campaign contributor as the inheritor of cultural capital, my privilege must be checked so that I do not have a disproportionate influence over the future. Meanwhile, what what are called marginalized voices must be empowered. This explains the anti-western ideology at universities which which is uh, anti-western culture but champions and celebrates non-western traditions. Uh, and it does so while treating the classics of Western literature that you're studying here as dangerous threats. It also explains the contradictions that abound in programs of diversity and inclusion. Nobody considers an English department to lack diversity if the majority of professors are women and most of the rest are homosexuals or persons of color. And nobody blinks when activists insist that hiring a conservative Christian would threaten to undermine a university's commitment to inclusion. Now I'm starting to rant. So let me stop here and return to my central point. If we make a shared love of freedom our sole goal, we will get something like present day cultural progressivism and its totalitarian tendencies. Over the last generation, some ask why the happenstance of being born in the West ought to dictate our moral convictions. After all, if true freedom means that my destiny should not be determined by my social class or my race or my sex. Why should it be determined by my culture? If we prize, if we prize freedom above all else, then the most American thing to do is to renounce the authority of the Western t- tradition. Uh, and this is not entirely new in our society. I mean, One can think here of Ralph Waldo Emerson and, uh, and Thoreau who 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 do, kind of, who do counsel rejecting the authority of the old world and starting anew. Only after every inherited authority is overturned can we be truly free to realize John Stuart Mill's ideal of experiments in living. Thus the moral, relativiz- moral relativist of our time is not a nihilist or maybe the nihilist is not a nihilist. Rather, he is promoting freedom, the freedom to define the moral truth for oneself. So that's my sense of that, the first part of what I'm saying, that uh, liberalism when it's the sole love, uh, it leads us astray, it goes off kilter. In After Virtue, Alistair MacIntyre discusses the moral theory of emotivism and not moral relativism, but they amount to the same thing. And McIntyre shows that a determined refusal to identify the substantive ends that constitute the good for man reduces moral and political debates to contests over power. As he puts it, without Aristotle we end up with Nietzsche who saw freedom as the prerogative of the powerful and not uh, something generally available in in a society. But I want to leave this kind of analysis to the side. Let's simply observe how our shared love of freedom has failed in the United States to create a free society. Go through some observations here. Enslavement to hearth gods of health, wealth, and pleasure. We've heard a great deal about the epidemic of opioid addiction and its death toll. And public health uh, uh, officials warn us of a more widespread epidemic of obesity that's likely to cause an even greater degree of early death. The cultural vital signs are also bad. Marriage rates are down, while rates of illegitimacy are up. Many people, especially those in the lower rungs of society, are living in bondage. Lacking self-discipline, they are unable to get their acts together, and as a result, they cannot even achieve their most modest goals. And the bondage is not just limited to the lower classes. Those at the top of society are in the grip of powerful fears. The most talented young people I meet are terrified of taking a wrong turn as they navigate the gauntlet to gain the right credentials, the right honors, and the right internships. They worry inordinately about getting a bad grade or, God forbid, saying something on social media that will cause them to be canceled. Gen X folks spend hours in the gym. Baby boomers my age are locked in a losing struggle not to get older. As I've written recently, were my grandfather to survey the current scene, he would be shocked not by the hedonism but by the iron discipline, the self-administered horse whippings. Polling suggests that among the young, even sex, the preoccupation of our entertainment industry is in decline. Far from being a culture of freedom, anything remotely carefree or adventuresome seems impossibly remote for society's winners. So you think, wow, Nietzsche thought that the powerful would have the the opportunity for freedom, but we live in a society where even the powerful are in bondage to their anxieties and fears. And this sense of fragility is pervasive Young people at expensive universities insist that they are vulnerable and easily hurt, and colleges respond by promising to provide safe spaces. When Trump was elected in 2016, people wept. Since then, the fever has worsened. People on the left and right regularly announce the coming apocalypse. Democrats fear the return of Hitler. Republicans see Lenin on every doorstep. And of course, the response to the COVID pandemic Was powered by a deep fear of death, so much so that we were prohibited from accompanying the dead, and bearing uh, accompanying the dying and burying the dead. As Giorgio Agamben noted, over the last two years, the West willingly embraced the barbarism of bare life. Say what you want about America in the 21st century, these are not qualities of a free society, as Thomas Hobbes understood very well. Fear is the great and primordial enemy of freedom. Final set of observations here, technocracy, materialism and determinism. We we live amidst remarkable paradoxes. We're in the grip of a culture feverishly determined to free us from every hindrance, even those imposed by our bodies. And yet, whether through brain science, or sociobiology, or economic theory, leading educational institutes and in instit- institutions instill in our elite the conviction that human beings are largely determined by economic interests, DNA, and other material causes. Although social scientists like Steven Pinker no doubt have disdain for the woolly theorizing of literary critics, those postmodern savants also boil life down to supposedly fundamental drives such as sexual desire, will to power, or fear of difference. I mean, consider the concept of white privilege. This notion serves as a law of social life as implacable as the law of supply and demand. Now, I'm not surprised by the materialist and determinist consensus that runs through higher education from sociology to the study of literature. It is necessary for a technocracy, the legitimacy of which turns on following the science. And and science does not have a place for human freedom. Even psychology, insofar as it purports to be a science of the soul, operates without a strong concept of freedom. So today our society is dominated by an elite that advances America's love for freedom. I mean, look at transgenderism, we're gonna free ourselves from nature itself. But the same elite possesses no deep insights into the nature of freedom. This leads to one of the paradoxes of our time, which is the Francis Bacon-inspired ambition to engineer culture, even to the point of micromanaging pronouns. And to do so so that everyone can be truly and finally free. It's got a great paradox. Uh, You know, a micromanaged culture for the sake of freedom. But a managed culture, even more so than a managed uh, economy, may claim to serve freedom, which of course, as did uh, 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 communist Russia, claimed that its managed economy was in the service of freedom. But it produces the opposite, as today's woke totalitarianism so amply demonstrates. Another paradox is the combination of idealistic activism and a pervasive sense of impotence and exhaustion in our society. Perhaps the former is adopted as a therapy that helps us deal with the latter. Whatever the relation, I'm struck by the the desperation latent in the claim that history is on the side of justice. There's a kind of desperation in that claim. This this turn of phrase suggests a benevolent determinism, one that vindicates progressive idealism while conceding the late modern suspicion that we're under the thumb of powers beyond our control. As Peter Thiel notes in Zero to One, his philosophical treatise masquerading as a business book, a great deal of our thinking from science to investment strategies has shifted from trying to understand causes so that we can use our intelligence and freedom to t- engineer better outcomes to developing algorithms so that we can stand atop whatever waves happen to come our way. Although less immediately damaging than fear, cynicism also undermines freedom. Today, a Harvard undergraduate can throw herself into the latest woke causes and fashion herself countercultural, and then in her senior year, apply for a McKinsey consultant position. I've listened to conversations in which young people toggle back and forth effortlessly between ardent statements about social justice to Machiavellian calculations about how to advance their careers. All of this is a far cry from the 1960s when college students had the courage of their convictions and went all in, with some heading off to join communes and otherwise shunning the blandishments of success as the world would define it. One sees today's culture more vividly in those who are coming of age, I would submit, in the generation of most people sitting in this room. And what I see suggests that liberalism's love of freedom is failing, not succeeding. Although those born in the early 20th century fought on the battlefields of Europe and in the Pacific, and in my generation grew up under the shadow of nuclear holocaust, today's younger people Seem to harbor a far greater fear of death. And while my grandparents married and had children in the depths of the Great Depression, most talented young people, those who have the wealth of opportunity before them, are far more in the thrall of a fear of not having enough money. I went to high school in the final years of the old middle class consensus, which was often punitive of those who were awkward, deviant, or odd. But from what I observe, the anxiety my peers when I was a teenager my peers had that they might be excluded or judged pales in comparison to the fear that high school students now have of being shamed on social media and fear as I've already noted is the great enemy of freedom. Now I've defined freedom as autonomy which is to say self-command. Let me put it even more simply Freedom means doing what you want to do. This, I believe, is how St. Paul understands freedom when he tells us that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. As he observes in Romans 7, we're we're in bondage to sin and death, doing what we do not wish to do and failing to do what we wish to do. This kind of bondage is all too evident in contemporary America. Having organized our archivitas, our polis, around a singular love of freedom, we have significantly eroded the sources of freedom, which rest in the strength of our substantive loves, not in our declarations of independence. Nietzsche observes that freedom arises from the power to say no. So that's Spartan truism. The free man is the man who can say no, I will not. And this power is found in loves that are stronger than our fears. The Jewish tradition grasps this fundamental truth about freedom. Among the words, a little digression, rabbinic digression here, among the Hebrew words for freedom in the Old Testament, two are prominent. One is hofesh. It is used in Exodus 21.2, the verse stipulating that a male Hebrew slave must be freed after six years of service. The other is drawer, found in Leviticus 25.10, which commands that freedom shall be proclaimed throughout the land during the year of Jubilee. Let freedom be proclaimed throughout the land. This verse is inscribed on the Liberty Bell in Philadelphia. And the same word is employed in Isaiah 61.1, which tells us that the coming Messiah will bring liberty to the captives. It's interesting to note, however, that Jews do not focus on these terms. For them, the central word for freedom is Herut. It's the one associated with the Passover uh, festival of freedom. Now this is a very odd choice. The word Herut appears in 1 Kings 21.8 where it is usually translated as elders or ministers, which is to say those who are dedicated to God's service. Stranger still is the path by which this word comes to mean freedom the ancient rabbis substituted Herut for Harut in Exodus 32:16 uh, different vowel and uh, the Torah is written Hebrew has vowel markings uh, and the letters are all consonants and in the Torah you don't the vowels are not preserved so all, all, all you get in the in the first five books of the Bible are the consonants and not the vowels. So that's why the substitution is not as as willful as it seems, although it's still pretty darn willful. So they substitute Herut for Harut. In that verse in Exodus 32, 16, Harut, the word that's being replaced, means engrave. God has engraved the, the Ten Commandments in the stone tablets that Moses carries down from Mount Sinai. Thus, by the twists and turns of rabbinic reasoning, they're telling us that engrave really means dedicate. Harut really means herut, which really means freedom. Now, unlike Christianity, Judaism often articulates core doctrines through striking and sometimes counterintuitive interpretations of biblical verses. In this case, the ancient rabbis are defining freedom. To be free, quite simply, we must engrave God's commandments on our hearts. And of course, the rabbis were not inventing this definition. It is the prophetic, the prophetic promise of Jeremiah 31 33. I will put my law within them, and I will engrave it on their hearts. The same view of freedom dominates the New Testament. Hebrews eight, ten quotes the verse from Jer- Jeremiah, And in many places, St. Paul teaches that faithful obedience to Christ brings freedom. With the law of Christ engraved on our hearts, we're able to say no to the commands that are issued by the worldly powers that seek to dominate us and our lives. Now, one need not adopt, I think, a Jewish or Christian faith to see the truth in the definition of freedom as herut, I have described freedom as autonomy or self-command. Quite simply, freedom means doing what we want to do rather than what others tell us to do. In St. Augustine's formulation, my love is my weight. If I love something, I am drawn towards it and I want to act in accord with my love rather than as others command me to act. Thus, the more powerful our loves the greater the freedom we enjoy, for for love galvanizes our souls. The power of love's yes allows us to say no to anything that runs counter to that which we truly desire. As an aside, I'd like to note that James Madison uses precisely this insight in his explanation of the way in which the separation of powers limits government and protects freedom he notes that each branch of government is jealous of its prerogative it loves its prerogative and this motivates it to clip the pretensions of the rival branches say no to their invasion of the prerogative of that, of that branch and a similar line of reasoning operates in Catholic social doctrine the church recognizes that our loyalties to family and church will pinion the power of the state from below family and from above church. Now, whether it's James Madison or Leo XIII, the insight is the same. Freedom comes not from legal rights, but instead from our loves, for love resists invasion and rejects usurpation. Let me return then to my main theme and recapitulate the ground I've covered. Liberalism urges us to love freedom, and it seeks to erect a city founded upon this shared love. But the more liberalism succeeds, the less freedom we have. As we organize our society around a singular love of freedom, we erode freedom's deepest sources, which rest in the strength of our other loves. Now to the term that I've been avoiding, interregalism. Now interregalism is an even muddier concept than liberalism. For my purposes, I will define it as a vision of society ordered towards a shared love of a range of goods, shared loves, plural, of a range of goods, plural, rather than a singular love of freedom. In such a society, our souls are roused to higher ends than self-interest or self-actualization. And these ends are many and various let me just sort of venture a short list that would simply describe a traditional society. We are nurtured towards a love of matrimonial union and family loyalties. Local and regional pride flourishes. We're taught to relish the beauty of the English language and to cherish the great books of our tradition. A patriotic sentiment takes hold. Those with talent for speculation are romanced by philosophy and feel the lure of transcendence. And finally, a broad consensus encourages religious piety. In each instance, we are developing loyalties to something higher than ourselves, and these loyalties empower us to say no to whatever undermines or contradicts those loves. In the power of no, we attain the freedom of doing what we want rather than what others command us to do. We live in accord with truths whose authority we affirm and endorse rather than in accord with our fickle ever-changing desires or the commands of others. Now as a political philosophy, integralism is a close relative to traditional conservatism. It insists that a just society must propose a substantive vision of human goods to its members, especially the young, as they are educated. Moreover, a just society must vest, and this is kind of the key point, I think, must vest appropriate power in the authorities entrusted to promote and protect these substantive goods. Let me give a concrete example. Worship is a fundamental good, and political authorities ought to encourage it. This does not mean that politicians should lead church services or clergy should govern. Rather. Governmental power should be used to promote and protect the virtue of religion. We do so already in the United States. To the, to the dismay of those who seek a more purely liberal polity, the constitutional right of free exercise of religion accords special rights to people who are religious. I have a special right as a religious person that a non-religious person does not have. And I want to note here it's a grave mistake when some, that some make when they redefine free exercise as a general right of conscience. Furthermore, in my youth, a variety of Sabbath laws fenced off Sundays as uh, from the invasion of commerce and the dominion of mammon. Now it's no longer 1965, but clergy tell me that the proliferation of Sunday morning sports leagues poses a new threat to church attendance. This suggests the need for a local jurisdiction, local jurisdictions to impose limits on our collective American fixation on sports by prohibiting leagues from scheduling practices and games on Sunday mornings. This, this strikes me as a, as a kind of uh, this is the integralist insight. The, the good of religion is not the, the, you know, the good of religion is not the same as the good of freedom, uh, uh, but we should be promoting that good and we should be empowering authorities who are entrusted with that good. As I've noted, integralism is a vague beast. Uh, And perhaps it must be so, for a great deal turns on determining which goods are to be prized and, perhaps even more importantly, how much power to, to accord the authorities that promote these goods. Now, I count myself a liberal conservative. This means that I counsel tolerance of the inevitable plurality of goods promoted in a society as vast and heterogeneous as ours and I certainly urge caution in the degree of power backed up by state sanction that is to be accorded to the cultural, moral, and religious authorities that are custodians of those goods. But let me conclude by saying that I am certain that a genuinely liberal society, one that is capable of sustaining a culture of freedom, requires those goods, and it requires the authorities that form us to love them. Put simply, Without the leaven of something like integralism, liberalism fails, as Patrick Deneen has observed. As a people, Americans rightly love freedom. But to vindicate that love, we must share other loves and order our society to promote and protect the objects of those loves. If we're to taste the sweetness of freedom, we need the salt of what today's liberals foolishly deride as illiberalism, thank you.